Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. How does a 16-year-old boy evolve into a bank robber? An evolution of a criminal filmmaker, Darius Clark Monroe, asks this very question about himself after seeing his mother and his stepfather struggle to make ends meet while living out just outside Houston, Texas, Monroe decides to help them by robbing a bank with a couple of friends. Returning to his neighborhood several years later after the crime, Monroe creates an incredibly intimate and personal journey of reflection and forgiveness while examining lower-class struggles, the desperation of a teen under pressure, and the emotional impact that rippled in the aftermath of that day. We are joined today here on Film School, by the director and subject of this wonderful documentary, Evolution of a Criminal, and that would be Darius Clark Monroe. Darius, welcome to Film School. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for being here. Um, I uh, I just want to say at the at the outset, uh, this is a wonderful documentary on a lot of levels. Uh, one, I don't think I don't remember seeing a film um, like yours in the sense that um, the, the, you are the, the subject as well as the director and, and, the, and the way in which you approach it. I think it's a, you did a wonderful job of e- evolving the story as well as, uh, as making a terrific film. Um, tell us a little bit, for our listeners, a little bit about, I just described it, but tell us a little bit about once all of these things have happened in your life, how you came to become a filmmaker and then the decision to move forward and make this film. Yeah, you know, it's it's the the I guess the journey to, to filmmaking was a uh, um, it was just a strange one because I had no interest in, in filmmaking other than just you know going to films uh, as a kid and, and experiencing film like you know just a just you know a, a normal citizen would. Yeah. But when I was incarcerated back in 1998, just being alone and being isolated, um, I just started to read so many books, and I was left just with. Um, just my thoughts and imagination, and I, and I began to just visualize all of these ideas and concepts. Uh, and I just became curious about storytelling. Uh, and it was just a one fortunate day where I was in the, the law library, and there was an article in the newspaper that, that talked about the, you know, different film schools in the country and the top film programs. And that was the first time I uh, knew that you know, one could go to school to learn the craft of cinema. I had no idea, and I became fascinated with the fact that this was, a, this was an opportunity for me to do something with my life, and I, I was just instantly um, compelled by uh, uh, by this article. And so, um, after getting out of prison and, and finishing undergrad, I applied to NYU uh, like any other student would, and I was, you know, really, really grateful when I was accepted. And then, in my third year of the program, uh, it's our thesis year, I was actually standing in a bank, uh, waiting in line, and I thought somebody uh, outside the sketching was going to come into the bank, and I had a full-on panic attack that day. And uh, I was sweating, I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't focus, and I was trying to figure out why. Uh, but I knew deep down why I was feeling that way, because since I was involved in the robbery, I had always felt that I was going to be a part of another robbery. Mm. And that day in the bank in New York City, 10 years after the robbery, uh, it just hurt me um, that I was so busy trying to focus on my life and that I never took the time to acknowledge what I had done to those customers inside the bank. And I really wanted to go apologize, and I really wanted to just hear their side of the story, and I wanted to just share my experience. 
And I had no idea how I was going to do that, but I, you know, I spoke to a couple friends, and uh, you know, it was, you know, we thought that it would probably be a good idea to do a documentary, uh, and that was the initial idea. But then after talking to my mom, I just realized that my family should be involved in this, and the, and the story was, you know, it was larger than just uh, redemption and forgiveness. Uh, I really wanted to explore how I got involved in the robbery in the first place. How did a kid uh, who had no interest in, <laughs> in committing crimes and, mm-hmm. and living a life of crime end up? in a maximum security prison uh, in Texas. And so that's how the film came about. Well, and and so there it is. There's a setup, and uh, obviously one of the strengths of evolution of a criminal is your ability to put us inside your, your head as well as your family, as you just described it. And one of the, for me, one of the pivotal scenes in, in evolution of a criminal is the first time you approach someone who was in the bank at the time of the robbery and hearing them. It was a minister, as it turns out, or it, he was he was beginning his his you know, his tenure as a, a minister when the when the crime occurred. And he had right. he had he he had himself evolved considerably since that day. Um, and it was just a there's a lot of key points along the way. Um, and I'm just cu- curious was your family resistant? Uh, was there what was the kind of the, the the trajectory for them in terms of buying into the idea of doing a film like this? You know, my family uh, they, they've always considered me to be an oddball, and so <laughs> <laughs> but they love me so much. And when I approached them about this idea, they knew how serious it was to me. Uh, they knew what it meant uh, to me, and they also knew that I was going to be involved. That it wasn't going to be just, you know, an expose about the family with the filmmaker just quietly in the back manipulating the material. They knew that I was not only going to be involved in the interview process, but that I was going to be the subject as well, or one of the subjects. And so there was no hesitation. Uh, I explained to them that, you know, I was going to interview them, and they couldn't tell other family members what we talked about. Uh, that I wouldn't give them any questions up front. That we, were, we were not going to have a discussion until I turned on the camera, and everybody was for it. That must have been a, a little unnerving at first for I'm them. I'm sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, I want to. I do want to explore the uh, this idea because you were, I believe, an honor student in school. You were doing very mm-hmm. well, very and and liked. You, you had a sound like you had a a very uh, you had a good experience in in high school um, on balance. And the idea of sort of the pressure there was a there your your family wasn't what we would call poor. But they were under constant financial pressure. Right. I want to talk a little bit about that and 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 that sort of that that enveloping sense of there's something weighing down on you every all the time that you can't get out from under, uh, and what that is doing to millions and millions of people across this country, black, white, doesn't matter. There is just a sense that there's never they're never going to tunnel out of this situation. Oh yeah. So talk yeah, to, talk to us a little bit about that sort of that feeling that you and I know your parents did. It seemed that they were doing all they could to kind of shield you from this, even though you were aware of it. But go ahead, talk to us a little bit about that that situation. Yeah, you know, it's it's it was you know I was always aware uh, just just growing up that you know that you know there was definitely you know different classes and different levels of privilege. Uh, but what just struck me as, as a teen, I just couldn't get over the fact that my parents. No, they were exhausted. They were exhausted from working so yeah, much. Yeah. Uh, and they would work, work, work. And even on the weekend, sometimes my stepdad would work part-time uh, at, a, at a different job. And I just couldn't figure out why 
everyone was going to work. Everyone was trying to do their best to get to get a piece of this American pie, to get a piece of this dream, uh, and they just couldn't get over this hump. And I was, I, I couldn't process what it was as a, as, a, as a kid. I couldn't really see all of the systemic oppression and what was you know keeping everybody stuck in the class. And so I just, I, I just, I. It wasn't like I was blaming my my parents. Uh, I knew they were doing the best that they could, uh, but I could see that this wasn't just a a, a, a situation that impacted my immediate family. It wasn't. It, I could see with my extended family that people were hurting. I could see with friends and classmates that people were hurting, and these were folks who were good people, hardworking people, uh, who just couldn't seem to just get a break. And I just became frustrated. And, and it wasn't necessarily that it was just always conversations were being had between you know me and my mother. I was, you know, I was a teenager. I could observe. I could feel the energy in the room. I could see, uh, you know, there were Christmases where we there were no gifts. Or if there was a gift, it may have been 50 bucks, you know, one pair of shoes. But, you know, things have been hard for a long time, and the progression was really, really, really slow. And after our home was burglarized, I just felt like we were one situation away from falling into, you know, a, a, situ- a place that was, was just really destitute and, and was going to be really, really frightening. And a lot of times when we think about uh, poverty in this country, it's, it's always extreme. Uh, we never focus on the fact that there's a huge uh, segment of this, this population that are working class poor, that are people who go to work every day and are still trapped in the cycle of poverty. And now it's, you know, it's, it's planned that way. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not a coincidence that you have millions upon millions of people who get up every day and can't, can't get a good wage, can't get... Uh, you know, can't get proper health insurance, and they're having a difficult time trying to support a family and pay the bills. And then we try to figure out, well, why do these uh, individuals feel like they're, you know, they they have to be pushed sometimes to do things that could be illegal? But there's a system that keeps you in place, and I feel like there's a uh, there's a frustration. But I think everyone is overwhelmed, and no one knows how to get out of it. Uh, everyone is trying to process their own existence, but no one can really see a light at the end of the tunnel. And I was just, I, 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 to be honest, I really was just over it. I was over, the, the, you know, as a son, as the oldest child, I was just over uh, this existence, and I wanted an immediate help. I wanted to do something that can impact the family right then and there. And the only way I saw that at the time was this bank robbery, that this money would be an instant infusion of, of, uh, of, of resources to help us get out of this, 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 uh, this really, really sad place. Yeah, and and I, you know, not to make in light of this situation, but just sort of from a visual perspective, the the system seems rigged. It seems like a really bad game of shoots and ladders. I don't know if you ever yeah. played that game where you walk up, but you hit a shoot. You're 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 constantly fi- facing this never ending uh, obstacles that keep you from just getting a little bit of money in the bank, getting a little bit ahead. The idea of accumulating assets that upon which you can build, uh, a, you know, a, a life for yourself is just, it seems unreachable. And I, I mean, I, I, there's 50 million people in this country. I don't want to turn this into a political tirade, but 50 million, 50 million people in this country live below what the federal level calls the poverty level. But there are tens of millions more who live in just the circumstances you're describing, which is they make they work two jobs that every one of the family works. They're constantly under financial pressure and and it and it doesn't seem to ever go away. And you're absolutely right in your observations, in my opinion, that that all these things eventually push people to the point where they're doing things unimaginable to them otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, well, I want to no one wants to get involved in the criminal justice system, but people have to sometimes make really, really, uh, you know, poor, poor choices due to poor circumstances. And, and, uh, and Darius Clark Monroe, this is uh, once you are now that you mentioned the the judicial system, this is where race really becomes um, the uh, an issue. This is really this is you can argue rightfully or wrong that that, you know, the situation with, you know, substandard wages and all the rest of it. It's not as much of uh, a race issue, but there's no argument that the judicial system is where race becomes predominant issue. And uh, and that's that's the trap that so many people have fallen into. And uh, let's I want to go back to your film, because it, it in addition to sort of highlighting a lot of these issues that we're discussing right now it's a personal story and yeah. and one of uh your evolution as we said in the, in the evolution of a criminal uh, your evolution to the point where you're in school you're studying film um you want to become a filmmaker and you've made this decision i'm going to make a film about my my life experience and i'm going to use my family um where did you how did money factor speaking of money how did that how did you get from that point to being able to as we sit here today being able to talk about your film uh you know <laughs> i had no idea how much you know i'm thinking <laughs> documentary but i had no concept yeah. of just the cost of uh, going down this rabbit hole of making a feature documentary i had never attempted something like this ever before in my life uh, it took seven years, and initially, the first uh, amount of money was a student loan. I took some of my student loan from NYU, okay. and I took $25,000 from that student loan, and I put it into the film. And I was working full-time, uh, and uh, finally, we received our first grant from the Austin Film Society. That helped us, and then we had a, uh, a few private investors who, who were super, super uh, fortunate enough. They watched some of the footage, and they you know, uh, gave some uh, funds back in 2008, but then for the next few years, uh, it was literally just me paying, working, like I said, full-time and paying as I went, and I was, uh, you know, just really honored to have collaborators who understood that there was no real source of money and that, you know, sometimes you can get paid this week, sometimes you may not, uh, but then once the film, uh, you know, once we were closer to completion, we really, really, really received tremendous help from the Tribeca Film Institute, from Center Region, from IFP, Doc Lab. Those folks really came in right when I needed them most and helped us get across the finish line. And I, could, I really, really couldn't have uh, finished this movie without the help of those three. Well, I, and looking at the film, the film is beautiful to look at. I don't know what I'm. What what camera did you generally use for this? <laughs> um, so, because we didn't have a lot of money back in 2007, this was before the DSLR craze. Uh, we shot on the DVX which was, a, you know, a cool, everyone had a DVX yeah. back then. Yeah. Uh, we used the DVX, and we also used a 35-millimeter adapter with Nikon still lenses for a lot of the interviews. And so that old, grainy, uh, uh, almost like a live photo album look comes from just that spinning glass and that old SD camera. And then we shot uh, all the reenactments on the red, scarlet, and then some of the later interviews on the uh, on the Black Magic. And so we used, you know, the, the film is literally just, you know, uh, uh, you know, an evolution of formats at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, went on, <laughs> uh, but we tried to maintain a, a consistency in terms of tone yeah. and and and, and uh, style. So even though the formats changed, we wanted it to still feel 
still uh, uh, cohesive. It's it, it, it it's a consistent look. It looks beautiful. It really is a beautiful film, and the reenactments are terrific. I know this is always a tricky kind of area to get into as a documentary filmmaker in terms of reenactments. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and your decision to put you in front of the camera as well. So you have people reenacting key parts of this story, and then you yourself are in the subject of the interviews. Um, have you? And I've heard a little back and forth about this. Um, have you? Do you care to to basically? I, I don't even know if this is an area. You, it's not even worth talking about. Never mind. Let's, let's no, stay. no, no, well, I mean, go with you know, well, Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, is have you taken some flack for, for being the subject as well as the director? Um, oh, well, absolutely. <laughs> okay, all right, that's the absolutely. question. Uh, I've had, there's flack from, you know, me being the subject. Uh, there, you know, there's talk that uh, I'm using this film as a publicity stunt, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, just trying to get a career off of this, and clearly individuals have no idea of what it's like to make a documentary. No one goes into documentary to get famous. Yeah. No one works for seven years. Uh, was, yes, for, for something to be a calling card, uh, and also you know people are grappling with you know trust. You know, can we trust the subject? Which is interesting considering what the film is about and uh, trying to subvert expectations of who and what a criminal is. And so uh, I actually like the fact that there are voices out there who are struggling and trying to understand this film. Uh, we've you know we've had slack for the reenactment. Some people in the documentary documentary, documentary uh, community. Uh, you know, they are purists, and they believe that the doc should, you know, be a certain form, but I believe the documentary uh, is incredible because it allows you to experiment with the form. Mm-hmm. It allows you to add different tools and different methods that uh, a lot of times fiction film really can't handle. Uh, doc welcomes it. And so I was thrilled to uh, add a, a dramatic and a fictional element to something that was true because I didn't have the footage. I didn't, uh, you know, I wasn't able to uh, get the videotape because it was destroyed, and so there were moments that I wanted the audience to experience, and I wanted the audience to, to understand what it was like for teens, not grown men, to tell you a story that happened in the past, right. but for you to you know, step into the shoes of teenagers and to experience the pain and the exhilaration and the thrill and the, the, just the terror of being involved in a crime like this. Uh, but, you know, you know, you never make a film expecting everyone to like it, especially, you know, especially me. I always hope that there's going to be people out there who hate some of the things I do because I want to make things that are going to challenge and provoke and inspire uh, complicated uh, discussions. Yeah. And by the way, in, in my opinion, as somebody who watches a tremendous amount of documentaries every year, I think that discussion of reenactments really died with the Thin Blue Line back in, in the 90s when Earl Morris... I, I, thought, it, I thought so as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've read some reviews where people are still up in arms. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you know, you know, we, we're making, uh, you know, uh, movies with sound now, too. And so I just, I yeah. feel like there's, you know, we're always going to have those kind of discussions. People will always feel a certain way about things. But um, in terms of, <clears throat> I want to kind of talk about the, the way that you as a person, when you started this project, and you obviously had something in mind with Evolution of a Criminal, by the way. Remind our listeners, we're speaking with Darius Clark Monroe. He is the director of Evolution of a Criminal, and it opens this week. Uh, we are Friday, uh, October 17th, and it's opening oh, at the, um, the Music Hall, the Limley Music Hall. Thank you, Limley Music Hall, and you'll be there for... Uh, I'll be there for the Q&As uh, this evening, uh, the 7, it's like a 7, I think a 9.30, and then I'm back on the 21st and 22nd. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. So it, when you started this project, 
and you had something in mind. This is what you wanted to do, and you started down this journey seven years ago. What was it has in terms of what you hope to accomplish, and how it ended up? What is the difference in in your perceptions about where you started and where you are today with this film? Oh yeah, you know where I started. Uh, to be honest. I really thought when I started this film that I was actually at it. I had enough distance to tackle this. I thought I had, you know, just emotionally, I, I was I was in a healthy place, and that I was going to deal with this uh, subject matter with, you know, just again with that distance as a, as a director. But uh, what shocked me was the fact that I had never really had therapy, and I never really talked about uh, just how this whole situation, prison, the crime, how how it just really impacted me and the moment I started to do the interviews back in two thousand seven, I I was distraught. It was very, very tough because it just it brought up so much pain and, and, and uh just so many, so many memories that I was running away from. And after meeting the customers inside of the bank, my whole idea of what uh, I did and I was a part of shifted because I was I was able to understand their trauma and the pain they had to go through and just all of the thoughts and just the, the, just their experience uh, completely just rearranged what I, what I, what I uh, thought had happened that day. And so for the film to, you know, seven years later finally come out and be out now, I feel like you know, I'm in a very healthy space. Uh, I was just at, you know, just in New York City with Pastor Ned from the bank. And, you know, it's just been a remarkable journey to go from uh, – being involved in this bank robbery to being at a festival or being at a theatrical uh, premiere uh, with one of the people who were who, who had a shotgun pointed at them, uh, with someone who was down on the ground who was afraid that this was going to be the last moment uh, of their lives. And, and for, for us to be together and to have this communal experience, it's been healing, man. It's been really, really healing. And it's, um, to me, it, it, it has shown me just the power of hope and humanity and, and possibility. Uh, and this film has, has, has far exceeded anything I had ever imagined uh, when I first, you know, came up with the idea to do it. How's your family reacted to all of this? Um, you know, my family loves it. My mom has enjoyed this journey as well. She will not watch the film anymore. It's been really tough for her uh, because, you know, different audiences come to the film with uh, different you know opinions and experiences. And so... Um, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, your mom, you know, she talked to you or she, you know, you often used the money uh, to pay bills and, you know, she was, you know, she was a bad mother. But, um, you know, I've, I've told my mom not to be defensive. I told her, that, you know, people are going to watch this film. They're going to come away with, with, it, with their own idea of who and what we are. But you know who you are and you should trust, you know, that we love you and we support you, that you are not uh, by no means, <laughs> you know, a, a bad person. Mm -hmm. uh, as human beings, that we're complicated and we have to make tough choices. You know, my mom did not tell me to go rob that bank. Uh, she had no idea that I was going to go through with it. Uh, but I did. And, and after I did it, you know, she had to make a tough call as a parent. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, nothing is easy. And I feel like a lot of people want things to be easy and they want it to be black and white. Uh, but this film, you know, it's, it's, it's deals with the gray area in life. It deals with those complicated, uh, uh, just decisions. And so, you know, it's, it's, I think everybody in the family has just been, you know, they've just been blown away by this whole thing. And I think no one had any idea that, you know, the film would, uh, you know, just do well on the festival circuit. And no one even had any clue that the movie would ever come out. Uh, everyone believed that it was done. When I stepped away from the project in 2010, we all thought it was over and that we would never see it again. So 
uh, folks are just happy that it got done. Yeah. I, I want to echo the opinion of so many people who have seen the film that it's it's terrific. It is a journey uh, from from the beginning of your your experiences as a teenager to the point at the end of the film uh, journey to and it's enlightening to watch. It's in, informative and it's well done. This a very technically very well done documentary. Um, I'll say the music is fantastic. It just there's it's a whole package. It looks great. It sounds great. And and it's a a, a story that you've, you've told well. And um, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank uh, you. And um, I assume and i hope that you are embarking on other projects uh since then are you oh yeah absolutely are you on some, some other things good um re- one last thing before we get, let you get out of here um the one of the producers is spike lee um that's obviously one of those you're hoping for just the marquee value of having uh spike lee involved um uh, just tell us a little, just briefly what your relationship has been with him and working uh, with him on this. Uh, yeah, so um, Spike, you know, came on board back in 2007 before we had any footage to show. Uh, Spike was my professor at NYU. He's also the artistic director there. And uh, when I initially told him about this idea, uh, I wanted to you know, get an interview for, from him. You know, he shot me down. Uh, but he mentioned in another meeting that he would be interested in executive producing. And when we went down to Houston, Spike called and checked up on us. Uh, he wanted to know how the interviews were going. And then for six years, Spike was a champion, and Spike would call and motivate and, and threat, uh, you know, <laughs> threaten me because he wanted to see this film out. He wanted to see it done. Uh, he also <laughs> wanted to see some footage. Uh, but Spike was in my corner, like I said, before no one else came on board. And once he finally saw a cut, uh, there were great, you know, notes and great, you know, arguments about what should be in the film, what should be out of the film, and he really made me fight for every beat, for everything I believe that should be in this film. Uh, because we're different types, you know, we're different filmmakers of different styles. It was great to go up against this icon and, and, and to feel confident that, you know what, this is what I want the story to be, uh, and this is how I want to tell it. And he, you know, and he gave me the space to do just that. And he has, you know, he's at South by Southwest, uh, he was at the, the press tour for PBS uh, in June in Los Angeles. And so Spike has continued to help me get the word out. And having his name attached uh, you know, to the film, is, that's also you know, a very surreal experience for my family. They were able to meet Spike at South By. He, he was gracious enough to um, you know, pay for the whole after party and made himself available. And he, you know, he believes in the power of this story, and I just can't you know, thank him enough. That's it's fantastic. It's great to hear, and great to hear about filmmakers mentoring other filmmakers as, yeah. as Spike has been doing with this. Uh, just uh, a world premiere, as you mentioned, world premiere at South by Southwest this, just this year. Grant special grand jury prize at the Dallas Film Festival, uh, a filmmaker award at Full Frame uh, Film Festival, which is a great uh, film festival for documentary filmmakers, as well as the ju- a grand jury prize at at the same film festival full front let me start over full film god phil full frame <laughs> film festival i'm gonna this is i'm gonna take uh with the addiction class when we're done here a lot of f's a lot of, a f's. Lot of okay. f's in there so grand jury prize at full frame film festival this year as well so it's an award-winning film and uh and i so congratulations darius the uh thank you. yeah thank you so much for being here again the film is evolution of a criminal 
um, the director and subject of the film, Darius Clark Monroe, as well as will be at, we have here in front of us, we can tell you, you'll be at the uh, Lemley Music Hall 3 in Beverly Hills tonight, Friday night, as well as, it sounds like Tuesday and Wednesday night. Um, Correct. For the 740, did I get that? I want to make sure, 7... I think it's like 710. 710 screening, pardon me, 710 screening. So you'll be here there tonight, Tuesday and Wednesday night as well for the 710 screening. And I urge you to go there. And I I, thank you so much for a a terrific conversation about this and all the best to you and all your future projects as well. No, thank you so much for having me. I really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.